Half the Child by William J. McGee, Book Two, A Summer of Numbers. It's a summer of numbers and unlocking the ancient secrets of mathematics, especially simple addition. We count and we count and we count, and the world gently slides into much sharper focus, just knowing there are 54 squares on an ego waffle and City Field is 4.3 miles from our apartment, and Earth is the third planet from the sun, and it's two more nights of sleep until Wednesday, when there's outside morning playtime at preschool. And the LaGuardia Control Cab Tower, where I work, is 198 feet above the runway complex. Unless you count the sections partially cut off on the corners, because there are 68 squares, on an ego waffle. When we fly to visit my sister Kerry's family in Florida, I teach Ben to count the number of rows to the emergency exit. He counts and adds and weighs and measures, and slowly, methodically, carefully, surely, patiently, gratefully, graciously, he begins to understand just a little bit more about everything than he understood before. And therefore, so do I. Instead of analyzing the color of clouds, he counts clouds. It's five months until Christmas, Ben tells me one day. I tell him he's absolutely correct, but he isn't finished. And it's five floors to the roof on Uncle Kevin's building, where we're never allowed without an adult. I also teach Ben that a dozen is less than a billion. An NYU friend posted this on Facebook. Did you know the average four-year-old child asks 437 questions a day? Of course, it's on the internet, so it must be true. He counts the Cheerios bobbing in his milk. Walking to the subway, he counts fire hydrants, which I explain such a rusty apparatus helped save Grandpa Tom's life. He counts stars. On a hot night, while I'm reading to him in bed, he attempts to count my chest hairs, but he gives up underneath my ribs. When we shop for a new toy box at Ikea, he counts Swedish meatballs at lunch, although he won't eat the ones that touch the lingonberries. And he counts airplanes from the LaGuardia Tower when I can't arrange childcare, and once again he's forced to visit Daddy at work. When I play my Beatles CDs in the car, Ben wants to know why it takes 4,000 holes to fill the Albert Hall. In fact, so do I. He first grasps the concept of infinity when my mother sneaks him to Mass one Sunday and Monsignor Lafferty refers to a world without end. That leads to a lengthy discussion the next day about beginnings and conclusions, which segues into yet another viewing of The Lion King and yet another chorus of the circle of life. In midsummer, he asks for four mini bagel pizzas instead of the usual three. I wonder if he's hungry, and he shakes his head, explaining the third one was lonely, so he wants two pairs. In fact, he counts the entire contents of the box. I count the days he is with me. I even count the hours. It's a summer of departures and arrivals. Ben returns to LaGuardia on a hot Friday in May. 
Within minutes after their 737 taxis to a halt, I'm waiting at the happy end of the jet bridge, my FAA identification strung around my neck. She and Ben are among the last to exit, and when he sees me squatting near the ticket counter, his face quickly lights up. But then just as quickly, he looks down and clings to her forearm. He's never reacted to me like this before in his life. In fact, I have to gently pry him from her to finally get a hug. I smile at her, believing Ben's back home for good. In Evansville, she enrolled Ben in Temple Tots. Somehow, she managed to find a conveniently located synagogue in the birthplace of Indiana's Ku Klux Klan. It seems clear he's on track for the Jewish thing. I know it rankles my mother and others on my team, but I won't battle her on this one. I'm an agnostic, but I seem to be evolving into a secular humanist. So how can I fight for a church I deliberately left behind? Also, I believe it's nice to be given something as a kid, some sort of ethical structure, a framework, as it were. So hopefully you can grow up, start thinking for yourself, and question it, then reject it. Apparently, the rabbi's daughter has fervently rediscovered her religion, but I'm not questioning it, even though some are saying she's driving yet another wedge between Ben and me. I think that's paranoid, though a few members of my posse have begun believing the worst of her. I'm not at that point. Now that Indiana is behind us, I'd like to stay positive and work together to figure out the next 14 or so years until Ben graduates high school. We could all use some normalcy. So call me optimistic. It's my first full day alone with Ben since he returned from Evansville. We're on the widest part of the Grand Central Parkway, heading east, with the fairgrounds on our left as we cruise toward the Van Wyck and a trip to the Coney Island Aquarium. Ben's in his perch, strapped into the car seat in the center of the wagon, riding high where I can see his face drooping onto his left shoulder. He's out for a nap with dog on his lap. I'm not sure how to interpret why Ben's been acting so strange the last few days. That hesitance at the end of the jet bridge last week lingered, albeit sporadically. He has never shied away from hugging me, kissing me, holding my hand. But ever since she walked him off that plane, it's as if Ben knows something about me that I don't. He'll forget it for hours at a stretch, and then revert as if recalling absent instructions. I pop in one of my favorites, Warren Zevon, and sing along, ignoring the bright orange check engine light on the dashboard. Lovey needs new tires, a new battery, new suspension. But the money I don't have to spend on those things has already been promised elsewhere. Send lawyers, guns, and money. We're in the left lane and inching up towards 70 miles per hour. Then, before any sane person can even fathom why, the silver Mini Cooper in front of me slams full on the brakes. My brain instantly calculates this dipshit only just grasped he's four lanes away from the Harry Van Arsdale Jr. Avenue exit, and therefore the lives of multiple strangers, men, women, children, pets, dog, should be endangered, since that's clearly a better option than doubling back on Queens Boulevard and exit later. 
I can see the undercarriage of that crappy little car as the brake lights tilt upward from the sudden deacceleration. My brain simultaneously calculates neither the laws of physics nor the God I prayed to at St. Rita's school, when I still believed his existence will be enough to prevent me from rear-ending this oh-so-selfish prick in my 4,300-pound station wagon. But I recall the words of Bob Hoover, the greatest pilot who ever lived. Fly as far into the crash as possible. I brake and steer and brake and steer, and the wagon jerks, and then it squeals, it slides, and it shivies, and now we're just past the Cooper's left rear quarter panel as we kick up last winter's rock salt and plow through the grassy median, past the prick, and fishtail back into the fast lane. All this in the time it takes to grimace. In the patch of rearview mirror above Ben's head, I instantly see that, miraculously, for the first time since Robert Moses built that damn parkway, no one is tailgating in the left lane. It all happens so fast, I don't even get a look at the selfish one piloting the Cooper. The wagon writes itself as though it's on tracks, and we continue. But the adrenaline, as always, has burst onto the scene and now wants to stay. I feel my pulsing vessels and pound the steering wheel with the meat of my palm. Cocksucker! I hiss in fury at what a careless, faceless stranger was prepared to take. And then I hear it. Cocksucker! Ben chimes in. The rear view shows he's more than stirring. He's positively alert. I make my living finding the right words to express myself on a moment's notice during flashes of terror and distress. But for once, I'm vocally challenged, and I falter. The lecture about saying bad things just won't program itself. Instead, I say what I truly feel. I love you, buddy. For the first time since his return, his smile is genuine. I love you, Daddy. Ben is back. I live with my brother Kevin in his apartment in Astoria now, sleeping on his sofa. So Ben is de facto living here now as well, sleeping on the love seat facing the sofa. No formal discussions were held about any of this. It all just evolved. There are times when I think Kevin's completely wrapped up in his own life. But then I came home exhausted one night over the winter and found he had spent over $200 on Disney cars, bedding, towels, pajamas, slippers, toothbrushes, sippy cups, plates, bowls, utensils, etc. I'm forever surprised by family. Through the mediator, she unexpectedly suggests I stop calling Ben every single day he's with her. Why not weekly? So it's more special. I refuse, politely asking how a psychologist could suggest that. Of course, when Ben's with me, she hardly ever calls. During those nine months between September and May, I took ten trips to Evansville, home of the Purple Aces. I negotiated countless shift swaps to patch together four-day jaunts until my work schedule became hieroglyphics. In April, a nightmare woke me. I was expected at work, but couldn't confirm the date on broken phones. 
On nine occasions, I flew, but Evansville's airport only serves the greedy major airlines, so I found lower fares elsewhere, hopping southwest to Louisville or frontier to Nashville, transiting Baltimore one month, Philadelphia the next. I'd pick up a rented Chevy Geo or Ford Focus, anything for $20 per day, and interstate it to Evansville. I booked the lowest rates with Indian-born franchisees running Motel 6s and Super 8s. Once the good people at Thrifty forgot my reservation for a child safety seat, and I dug in until they borrowed one from budget. During Christmas, I snagged six days off in a row. No small accomplishment, but I worked double shifts as payback. Holiday airfares were too high, so I was forced to drive Lovey. The old girl wasn't sure she was up to it. On the 23rd, the eve of Christmas Eve, I was merging off the George Washington Bridge when the car alongside honked. Thankfully, I didn't extend the finger since it was a Garden State Trooper. Apparently, I was so distracted by dashboard lights, I'd nearly taken off the Crown Victoria's mirror. He inspected the brown bag of bagels for Rabbi Cohen, realized I wasn't transporting poppy seeds across state lines illegally, and wished me happy holidays. Of course, an Irish surname on a license often invites white privilege, like when the cop reads Michael Mullen and smiles, You drive safely, okay, Mike? As opposed to what Sam once heard in Dover, Hands, motherfucker! Let me see some fucking hands! Eventually, the left headlight died in Pennsylvania, and a radiator hose blew in West Virginia, but I picked up Ben to celebrate at Econo Lodge. It was a strange and quiet Christmas. The monthly visits soon fell into a pattern. Someone other than her always minded Ben at the off-campus apartment. Her mother, her father, a graduate student. I arranged pickups and drop-offs with them, which was easier. In fact, I didn't see her at all between December and April, and only communicated via the weekly mediation conference calls. I phoned every day, but Ben picked up himself. My sister Katie wondered if she was even in Indiana or living elsewhere. I didn't pursue it. Probably, I didn't want to think about it. Instead, I'd pull up to the apartment and toot the horn, and Ben would come running. We'd spend the next three days at horse farms, kitty arcades, or petting zoos, or walking along Dress Plaza by the Ohio River. We traveled as far west as St. Louis and as far south as Nashville. But most visits, we gravitated toward Louisville, taking Route 64 eastbound and laughing at signs for Santa Claus, Indiana. We visited Churchill Downs and the Louisville Slugger Museum. But Ben got a bigger kick out of Colonel Sanders' statue outside KFC headquarters. We ate many cheap meals at waffle houses, but eventually branched out, with Ben even sampling catfish. He and Dog toured Dixieland in rented car seats while discussing life and art and popovers. Early one Saturday at Red Roof Inn, Ben watched Curious George on his bed while I still dozed on mine. Finally, I stood up to stretch, exhausted from another long journey. Ben pointed, Daddy, what's that? 
I looked down. The nine-hour snooze had produced a major urine erection, one threatening to burst through my boxers. My instinct was to turn away, but I forced myself to play it calmly and not give in to generational taboos. That's my penis, buddy. But why? It's so big today. Yeah, well, cause I have to pee now. As I stood over the bowl, Ben watched me. Do all daddies' penises get big? Pretty much, yeah. Does my penis get big when I'm a daddy? I think so, yeah. Mercifully, he returned to Curious George. Between visits, the intervals, though they never extended more than four weeks, began feeling much longer after January. Each arrival uh, found Ben taller, leaner, more eloquent. His growth spurts occurred not when I strapped him onto carousels, but during the long gaps when I talked for hours on end to airplanes at La Garbage, or napped on Kevin's love seat, my face pressed against the Disney car's spread. In the fall, I financed these sojourns with MasterCard debit plastic. Those funds dried up after Halloween, so I switched to Visa and ran into its $10,000 limit by February, and was promptly alerted my credit wouldn't be extended by a friendly Mumbai-based rep named Woody. So by March, I used American Express, and by May, the week Ben returned, the folks at Amex froze my account. Meanwhile, the mail continually brings offers of new cards. It was the longest winter of my life. In my line of work, annual physicals are mandatory, not optional, and my last one didn't go well. During the first year without Ben, I gained 32 pounds, which was no mystery considering I eat such crap and at such crappy hours. The wastebasket at my workstation is a Jackson Pollock of gyros and pork buns, calzones and fajitas, pad tie drenched in gallons of Pepsi. The extra pounds helped drive up my blood pressure, which was promptly reported to the FAA. February was the nadir. On a snowy Thursday, I visited the seven-day clinic on Northern Boulevard, and the physician's assistant confirmed what I'd suspected about my two-week-old cold. Bronchitis. Anything involving the vocal cords is life and death in my profession. Up in the tower, bronchitis is discussed in hushed tones, like rotator cuffs in professional baseball clubhouses. So I begged for oral steroids, and he finally gave me antibiotics, even though he called it unnecessary. Unnecessary for him, not spending nine hours a day speaking to airplanes. The next morning, I borrowed whatever cash my mother had and used it for prescriptions and taxi fare. Then... Long Island railroaded to MacArthur Airport to fly southwest to Chicago and then connect to Louisville. By 10 p.m. I was at Midway, listening to the gate agent explain the receding snowstorm had forced the cancellation of all southbound departures. And there were no meals, phone cards, taxis, or hotels, since after all, this was a force majeure situation. In aviation, the golden rule is, always blame God. So where does that leave us agnostics? As an FAA-licensed controller, I could have occupied a cockpit jump seat, but there were no cockpits departing for anywhere that night.
I opened my wallet and realized I had exactly $74 to last through four days and several states. My flights, motel, and rental car were booked and vouchered, and I retracted a folder of paperless confirmation sheets. I sat in a plastic chair, emailing Super 8 and Alamo. I was cold, tired, and hungry. My throat ached as I considered the collection agencies, the NYU probation, a possible FAA suspension, the way Kevin's sofa dug into my kidneys. Over the last few months, I not only gained weight, but started taking longer naps and lost interest in dating. I realized I'd be sleeping on this plastic chair in Midway, where chairs aren't nearly as comfortable as at O'Hare. Then I clicked on my phone and saw I had forgotten to charge it yesterday. The Nokia had morphed into a $250 paperweight. Ben would be waiting up for me, counting hours out loud, or tossing in his bed, wondering why Daddy hadn't come. Daddy always came when he said he would. Always. I managed to find the last telephone booth not shipped off to the Smithsonian and croakingly placed a collect call to Evansville. Once again, she wasn't around. Instead, her mother answered. I have a collect call. What's that? I have a collect call, ma'am. Oh, they still have those? It's collect from... What is your name, sir? I opened my mouth, and at that very instant, that exact moment, the vocal cords making my entire life possible finally decided to shut down, utterly and completely. My brain forwarded signals. Michael Mullen. Michael Mullen. But the complete oral network went dark. I grunted, then groaned. Sir? I grunted and groaned once more. Sir? Are you on the line? Mm. Her mother chimed in. Who is it? Sir? I closed my eyes and willed my larynx into action. My, 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 sir, who is it? Who's on the line? Al, get off the line. Well, who is it? You know, my, my, Al, it's the operator. She's got a collect call. Collect? They still have those? From who? Ma'am, I think he's hung up. Well, who was it? Forget it, Al. My, my... I couldn't tell you, sir. Thank you for using AT&T. Then all I heard was a dial tone, and I kept it to my ear long after the screechy message about how if you'd like to make a call. I rested my forehead, my hot, bloated, burning forehead, against the icy metal support of the phone booth. Everything hurt. During high noon, while we waited for increasing contractions, I envisioned travel. I envisioned many things, but travel was paramount. Of course there'd be travel. I'm an aviation geek. Airplanes, hotels, future memories to fulfill. She and Ben and I would buzz through airports continuously. But not like this. With Ben away, I'm bored and spending too much time online, surfing one meaningless site after another. Yes, I know, the ultimate first world problem.
Somehow, I stumble upon an essay and start reading. Then I defy internet algorithms because, by the third paragraph, I'm still reading. The author had me at the title. Why are dads always portrayed as jerks in movies, TV, and commercials? Why, indeed. I click on the byline. J.T. Livingstone is co-founder of Fathers Are Critical Too. I visit FACT's site and find myself nodding. I'm hit with two emotions simultaneously. Shock that other fathers also are mistreated by the courts and fear that the Evansville decision was not the anomaly I believed it was, but rather the rule. Dozens of poorly written blog posts sound as though they were transcribed in the back of Judge Rhonda Westfall's courtroom. My organs constrict over paternal horror stories, the former CEO who resigned to spend more time with his kids and was promptly hit with child support bills based on his potential salary of $1 million annually rather than his actual salary of one-tenth of that. The dad on Long Island, whose ex-wife married a cop, so every time he picks up his kids, he's pulled over and strip-searched. The fathers whose children have disappeared to other states, countries, continents. There's a fact chapter in Queens. I log on under a phony name, Jimmy, to learn more. It's very early Sunday morning, deader than dead. At 4 a.m., I make a bagel run and brought back a dozen for my co-workers and left them on the cabinet with a bottled water, a small overture. Now, the circadian rhythm effect means I'll be napping later on instead of slapping together Legos with Ben. I'm so bored, I Google circadian and absorb factoids. Our biological clocks indicate best coordination at 2.30 p.m., and fastest reaction time at 3.30 p.m. So why don't the Mets schedule more day games? Then I stumbled across this. Highest testosterone secretion takes place at 9 a.m. Now I recall something submerged. On that last Saturday morning, just before she left with Ben and never looked back, in the final hours of the death throes of a marriage, she silently seduced me. I awoke to find her above me, red hair across my face, lips on my chest, breasts ballooning alongside my ribcage, thighs straddling my hips. My eyes widened, and we both turned toward the crib, where Ben slept in a blue onesie. She touched her finger to my lips, and I followed her naked form into the living room. The sofa was piled with Ben's toys, so we fell onto the carpet. It was our first sex in over three months. It would also be our last. The entire transaction took place in silence, and I ended up with a nasty rug burn on my knee. A week later, after she and Ben vacated the premises, I remember a sickening feeling. Had it been guilt intercourse? Worse, was it precautionary, covering a pregnancy? Was she ending things the same lustful way they began? Or just saying goodbye. I remember hoping this was an overture, but she left me lying on the floor. You want any coffee, Mike? No, don't drink it. It's Maurice, better known as Mo, on my right today. 
He's one of the most decent people at LGA. Tall, trim, silver-haired, all pleats and tweeds. My mother would say he stepped out of a bandbox, whatever that means. He's buttering a toasted sesame. I want to thank you, he says. The election. I heard. Oh, no biggie. Nope, it was like a heavenly choir. Two months earlier, Moe had run as a shop union delegate. Compared to the other Jamook on the ballot, Moe was hands down smarter, more articulate, and a better controller to boot. Back in the day, after Clinton's idiotic don't ask, don't tell, Moe was kicked out of the Navy. Some homophobic admiral in San Diego, no doubt deeply afraid of being yanked from the closet himself, booted Moe without so much as a hearing. Just a few days before voting, at a closed-door meeting of the rank and file, the Jamook's loudmouth supporters kept calling Mo unfit for office. So I stood up and challenged them to quit speaking in code about Mo's discharge for the good of the service. If they were homophobes, own it. A few days later, Mo lost in a landslide. No. A heavenly choir? You sound gay, dude. He smiled wanly. It's like what's happening with you now, your custody stuff. I swivel my chair and ask for clarification. Mo stares. Well, they figure you should forget custody. Move on. Focus on airplanes. You know, like a man. I stare out at Trump's gaudy 757. Is that how you feel? Absolutely not. Elliot and I were just saying, it's heroic. Then he adds, keep up the fight, Mike.